When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something that we've all, I think many of us have talked about for years, is uh, there was never this competition, but yet there was. It was, but it was like this really healthy competition of every time one of us did a record, everyone else would go, holy shit, is that what we're doing now? So the bar would be raised. That's Cursive and the Good Life's Tim Kasher talking about the early heyday of the Omaha, Nebraska music scene that he helped pioneer, along with bands like Bright Eyes and The Faint, among others. I'm Jenny Elliskew. This is episode 41 of the LSQ podcast. Thanks for pressing play. Tim and I recorded this conversation at his Los Angeles home, where I had the pleasure of meeting his cat Magnus and sweet dog Pearl. Pearl actually makes an appearance during the early part of the interview. Uh, It was fascinating, though, to hear Tim's insights into how his creative community developed and grew, as well as to talk about the ebbs and flows of songwriting, his relationship with his singing voice, and more. I love this interview so much in general, uh, so I really hope you'll listen to the whole thing. Also, because it's near the end of the conversation that we get to talking about some important Kasher news. The Good Life are going to be touring again this spring. I'll post those dates in the show notes. And Tim's also working on some new solo material, so listen through for more on that. Cursive released an awesome new album called Get Fixed last October, only a year after the previous one, 2018's Vitriola. So I was curious to start what had inspired that bout of productivity. Whenever we write an album, whenever we've worked on an album in the past, not all of them, but like I'd say like the last four probably, we write a lot, like a significant amount to um, have plenty to sift through and try to put out the best record that you can. So we'll generally have 20 plus songs In the past, it's always been super evident that many of those songs will not make it onto a record. (laughs) You know, and that's like that's the natural part of the process, you know. And it's nice to have that. It's like it's nice to have songs that you're like, this one kind of sucks, you know, and like this definitely won't make the record. It's kind of nice. It's like, yeah. And it helps maybe even bolster the ones you do like. Right, because you know you've whittled down from somewhere. Yes. So it was just a cool. It's, I mean, it seems like, you know, feels like patting ourselves on the back or something, but it's, it was a cool scenario that we didn't, we absolutely didn't expect where we just liked, a, we liked a double album's worth of material. Do you, do, is there, do you think there's any element or factor that created that scenario or this, on that occasion of, of getting together in the studio? I have, I, I have some ideas. I think that mostly kind of having done this long enough, I do sense that there's been kind of like an ebb and flow to, 
creativity to songwriting or like to quality of songwriting or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably something that's really. Here's my dog. Here's oh, Pearl. Pearl. She decided she'd check Hi, out what's Pearl. going on. You hear Daddy Hi, talking? Hi. No, she can't hear a dang thing. Oh, she can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we like yell loud enough, she'll be like, oh, okay. She's like the antithesis of a guard dog. She's like a welcomer dog. Um, so mostly, I guess, mostly I, I like to think that I just hit a bout of good songwriting, which is great. It's a nice feeling to have that. And I, and I guess by saying that, I'm also acknowledging that I don't always hit about a good bout of songwriting. Right. That I think that through the years that I've been doing this, that this is why it's personal to me, is because I don't think I like ever really want to say publicly like the records of which I think, oh, I don't, you know, right. I think I didn't hit songwriting as well for that record. Right. But you know? but for the ones for the ones that maybe you do feel a little bit that way about, could you feel it at the time a kind of anxiety that that like, oh no, like does. Am I having a drought? Is this a drought-ish? I mean, or it was, yeah. So it's always, the way I see it, I think this makes sense, is that I think it's always relative. And so in those periods, the overwhelming thought, I think, is, well, these are, these are all my best songs that I have here. But there is a little bit of a nagging voice in the back of one's head that's kind of like, is this really, the, you know, like, this is really the best. Are these are the best ones. Like, are there other? Are there more coming? Or you know, just kind of that kind of a. But I don't. For who I am, I don't know how to not. You just kind of. So you kind of just like. I can't imagine writing for two years and then being like, "Well, I'm gonna." I mean, I suppose some songwriters do that. They're like, right. "Well, I'm gonna scrap these." I've never released anything that I thought was subpar, but it goes back to the concept of the relativity of the whole thing. You know, yeah, just but like, also just like the, it being just a thing that you do at a certain point. And I mean, I feel like for artists, you know, all of the options are valid choices in a binary where it's either putting, you know, doing the thing of like, if I worked on this for two years, I'm going to put it out or the other extreme where you never release anything that you record because you're holding yourself to some ridiculous standard or never release mm-hmm. never share any paintings that you paint or whatever it might yeah. be and we have those friends and right? exactly yeah. exactly and that's that's a fair i get it like that choice as well but i also i really i think like once you've really entered into the world of commercial art like yeah why not just put out what you make because they don't all have to be the same or they'll I mean in anything even you know like whatever tattoo artists or what I do and like my line of work it's like not every you know some things that you make are better than other things that you make for various reasons but you're that's your craft you know one really easy way to explain this that for like any like songwriters that maybe or any writers in general or just creators listening to this is um especially for an album you people I think any just about any songwriter probably knows like well this song's really great and this song is also good, you know. And this song is also good and complements that one as well on the album. It's like nobody, yeah. I don't, I doubt anybody puts out a record where they're like, yeah, every I put out ten songs and I don't even know which one's better because they're all amazing. Yeah. It's like you put out a record and you're like, yeah, there's like varying degrees of. I know this is a deep cut, and yeah. this one's really special to me, but I don't think other people are gonna like it that much. And you know, just like all these different thoughts that you might have that's a good example right there say instead of those 10 songs that are on one album how about 10 albums right and so now look at them and now and now confess 
that all those albums, you think each one of those is your best album? It's like, yeah. well, no, you know. When did you start making songs? What was the first, what were your first attempts at songwriting? Um, pretty young-ish, I guess. Uh, music was one of the, like, very cool cultural things that, like, me and Matt McGinn, who, who you know, who, like, plays in cursive as well, uh, we grew up, like, really tight um, in the same neighborhood, so we've kind of known each other our whole life, and, but we're, music was, like, really important to us at a young age because, I don't know, we, like, gravitated toward alternative rock, like, back in the 80s, just, at a, and it, maybe it helped that we both had, we were both the youngest in our families. Right. So was, you know, gifted Violent Femmes, I think. I actually tried to figure that out, but I mean, I think I was listening to that Violent Femmes record like the year it came out, which would have been pretty young for me. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. Like, what year did that come out? 83 maybe or something like that? Yeah, so what, what were you, nine or that something? That would have been like nine. Yeah, yeah. that's, I mean. So maybe I started listening to it. I wasn't listening to anything something. that cool except totally accidentally at nine, you know. I feel really thankful yeah. for it. That I, that it helped that I kind of just like found really interesting, intriguing stuff about music like that. I still think that's one of the most. It's like not a, the most influ, It's like an influential record for me, absolutely. But like really, I just kind of want to say like in the greater sense, it's like that's like an influential record for alternative music, yeah. going moving forward. You know, like yeah. Violent Femmes, I think started a movement. Yeah. In so many ways. And there's other albums, too, of course, like Talking Heads were doing that as well, and Blondie or who, you know? Right. But, like, like television. But Violent, Violent Femmes, maybe even more specifically, like, into, like, my tract, you know? Yeah. Like, that became Pixies and, like, yeah. you know? Like, well, in a, sty- in a style, the kind of vocal style, obviously, of, like, uh, singing, talking kind of combination yeah. thing. Yeah, or yeah, probably like giving people such as myself like more like the confidence of like whatever. Like you're not, you know, like who's a singer? What's a singer? What does a singer yeah. mean? You know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Matt and I just kind of got excited about being a part of that. Uh, there was a guitar laying around. I even started playing around just like on the Casio SK1, which was a Christmas gift, probably when I'm like like fourth or fifth grade or something like that. Is that like the beige one? It's, um, (laughs) so there may be beige ones, but it's black. It's the really famous, uh, synth. It's a kid's synth, essentially, but it's the one that you could record, um, you could, you know, like, say, like, motherfucker on it, and then it'd be like, motherfucker, 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 and that's very exciting for a kid, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's like, it's that synth, like, a lot of people know. Nice. The Casio SK-1 classic. But then maybe then like a couple years, a few years after that, there was a guitar, laying, a guitar laying around the house because one of my oldest sisters, it was a passing fad, a very popular passing fad of the 70s. Yeah. Was it an because acoustic it was all guitar? The, yeah, an yeah. acoustic. Because it was just kind of all the rage. You know, it was, they were listening to Bruce Springsteen and, yeah. you know. Uh, so I started learning how to play on it. And then even started writing songs then but it was kind of like to a vacuum there was no um something i always like to talk about because i think it's important i think it's fascinating is that you grew up in omaha nebraska in there it's like they would if you were right you would do right into a vacuum because there's no there's no outlet there's no concept of outlet that's like for the coasts 
or that's like for Chicago, or that's like if you grow up in Omaha, Nebraska, you don't, you're not going to become a songwriter. That's like not one of the, that's like not a viable option, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean that as intensely or as sincerely as like it doesn't even enter your, it doesn't even enter into like, at least for me, it didn't enter into like, no one you there was know, no periphery. Right. Yeah, I, I, had, mean, I had no right. like, I had no examples. At that time, at that time, yeah, at that yeah. time. But, so then despite that, there was still kind of like just an interest to be, just like creative outlet, just wanting a creative outlet. So shortly after that, Matt picked up playing bass, because he got pretty excited that I was kind of showing this initiative. And it was like, and it kind of became, it could be something, become something a little bit more real, like tangible, like cool, you play guitar and I'll play bass. And but So when we started a high school band, we did what is totally comes natural, which I think many people many songwriters or musicians relate to and understand is that we just learn covers because that's the outlet. So what'd you cover like? It's cool. Who's Cardoo cool and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, yeah, I mean, Cure, R.E.M., too. Jam. Yeah. It was like, I mean, I look, looking back, I'd be like, cool band. If I were to walk in and see March Harris playing like Homecoming down the street, I'd be like, all right. Cool jams, kids. Yeah, <laughs> but how immediately did it feel to you like a par part of your identity, or that you wanted it to be a part of your identity? So we were, we were kind of a, we were ambitious as kids. We did, and kind of. So I guess I should say that we initially were like, okay, this is cool. So let's learn covers because if we learn covers, then we can play Homecoming and we can play like the Bonfire and you know maybe hit prom, you know. But it wouldn't take us too much longer until we decided, or, you know, that I kind of was, had the initiative of, a, of like, oh, you know, like, I want to write songs, and, like, we could perform these songs. And so then it kind of, so then it kind of shifted to, let's play these functions to get, to save up money so we can go into a studio. And so we put out our first cassette, like a seven-song cassette of originals and yeah I guess they're all originals I think so we put that out when we we're I don't know like 15 or something like that and that I I kind of consider that as this is my long-winded answer to your question that that is when I started um, becoming like more obsessed right with it right because um, because we became the novel we were a novelty then we were the 15-year-olds who in Omaha, Nebraska, who saved up their own, their money and went to a studio and put out an actual cassette. So like there was an article in the paper, and we had like a you know like they like a photographer came and like took a, a picture, and, and we were like so had cute. like an interview like on AM radio, and, <laughs> and uh, oh, and then this is actually such a great part of the story. I got a call one evening. My mom answers, she calls, she says, Tim, phone. I answer the phone and it goes, Tim, hey, this is Peanut from 311 because they were, they were an Omaha band. And he asked if March Harris would come and open for them. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Is your mind blown? It is. <laughs> I'm a part of 311 history. Isn't that fun? That is a fun footnote. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I still remember it that specifically. I remember the phone <laughs> ringing. I remember that. That's like all, like, as far as, like, all the memories memories we don't have, it's funny, like, that one was, like, cemented. It's like, what? 
Peanut? <laughs> and he called himself Peanut. I don't even know what his real name is. <laughs> but then, wait, like, did Peanut. you go and play? Oh, yeah. So then we started opening. Hey, we opened for them quite a few times. Um, I think that wow. we had a decent... We had, so I don't think we were that good as a band, but you were like 15, I mean. yeah. but we had like a pretty good, we had that like hearty, um, high school following, right? Cause it's like, you know, all the high schoolers were like, well, this is what, you know, right. But 311 like, were probably pretty young then too. I yeah, they were and but they were successful. They I really did not know that they were from Omaha and I feel like ashamed of myself. I feel like that's like. Uh, some some sort of like rock elitist uh, history rewrite on my part, well, and I'm sorry, three eleven. No, do you know who I think needs rapping for the four hundred two? Do you know who I think needs to, re- to apologize? Three eleven, because they got very successful in Omaha, and then they jumped ship and went moved to Van Nuys, specifically Van Nuys of all places. This is the story. Wow. And became a Van Nuys band, a slash LA band. Okay. And then they became huge, and then. So they were already like being courted by the majors, and part of the that was like got to get out of like. And it's true, right. it's true. They they really did burst the Omaha bubble. I mean, like they couldn't get bigger, but they forsook the four hundred two, as you said. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. So what would? But did those? Would, if I heard one of those early original songs by the March Hares, would I say, yeah, Casher McGinn, I hear. The, um, I hear that kind of sound in this. I wonder. Maybe we what, should what were test you, What were you it. trying to make it sound like in your teenage brain? Um, three eleven. No. <laughs> <laughs> we so that first stuff was we definitely moved away from it pretty quickly. So these we ended up doing two March Hairs albums. Uh, one thing is I wasn't. This is kind of unusual, but I wasn't singing. Um, I just didn't feel like I was a singer or that I was meant to be a singer. Uh, I think there might have been a little bit of, um, I feel like there's a little bit of like kind of Midwestern conservatism, conservatism slash maybe humility mm. in that as well. Kind of like, I really want to write songs, but maybe I shouldn't be like front and center. Right. Um, like maybe that's a little bit too bold. Right. Uh, and I think I just felt really weird about singing because it was just something... I felt like I wasn't capable of doing very well, so we had a singer. Um, so that's one thing that wouldn't sound that would sound a bit different. But the stuff we were doing was pretty was a, was definitely like maximum poppy, right? And I think maybe that wouldn't surprise you anyway, as far as like our age and just like and also I mean, I was raised on pretty poppy stuff. I mean. If we all can agree that the Cure and Smiths are like very poppy, oh and, yeah, you know, like that's and so we kind of just wanted to sound like stuff like that, yeah. Um, but like even pop, you're probably more like maybe it's more important to mention like REM, like that kind of you know like college rock, right? You know, at what point did it start to feel like there was other music kind of cropping up around you or beginning to? I mean, I know obviously you specifically. <laughs> Tim Casher were a linchpin person in some of the early bands that we associate with kind of the Omaha music scene or whatever. But what, at what point did it start to feel like, okay, yeah, there's all of my friends have ba- are starting to have bands and right. well, this is becoming a little community. There was, um, there was kind of, so before that stage, there was the like 
uh, eyes like open wide to an actual punk rock community that right. existed in Omaha and I didn't know about it. Okay. And that was really cool and very exciting. And it wasn't even just punk rock. We know how punk rock as like an umbrella term works, you know, it's just like, right. No, I know. No, it's like, I wish, I wish we could bring it back where people would, where, where they would call, be called punk rock just as a describe something much more meta than what mm-hmm. you might think of as like the sex pistols. Uh, yeah. So it, it was just like with that, there was probably some actual pretty aggressive punk rock, but then also just lots of just weird bands and everyone was doing originals and like wouldn't even consider doing, you know, it's just like, bands in Omaha all ages shows yeah and just totally fucking awesome and so influential for us and really helped shake us out of March Hares and into Slow Down Virginia which Mm -hmm. ended up being like the next high school band that we did that kind of went into college um in like just before we started Cursive that was so so all those bands and these bands that people don't necessarily really know, but I'll just like name drop anyway. That's like Mousetrap and Mercy Rule. And, um, oh my God, I fucking loved Mousetrap. So yeah, just a really big deal to me still. Yeah. Like, you know, like when something is like that seminal and that important to you at a time in your life, you know? So we're doing Slow Down Virginia and, but we're like really like that, that little exciting uh, bubble of like interest from our chairs like was long gone and we were really just suffering we were just doing we we're writing you know tons of stuff and doing tons of demos and always sending these demos out to labels and just trying to like you know kind of had the had caught the fever at that point so yeah just sending stuff around and just no luck and and just no luck around the local scene as well but then so now that gets us caught up to like the whole Omaha scene that we all kind of that we know now is uh, we were embraced by just that group and it was very funny, but we were really, really, truly appreciative. I'm still very appreciative to this day that this little pocket of like Ted Stevens and Connor and Justin Oberst and, uh, and Rob Mansell and, uh, and, you know, like myriad others. And then actually even some of the faint guys who were, there was, we kind of, they were very new to us. There's like new friends to us, you know, but they were doing cool music and they all became, um, super like, I'm going to say it for them. They became like super obsessed with slow down Virginia, which was just like totally through us, but it was cool. It was fun and we appreciated it. And so they offered to put a CD out for us. So that was, and it was cool, you know? And so there's in that along that, along with like Connor's first cassette, those were like kind of the first, two, three, four things or whatever that were on Lumberjack Records that became Saddle Creek Records. Right. And, I mean, what were your, you you know, only a little bit older than Connor, but when you first heard this even younger little dude making the music he was making at that point, what, what were your sort of first impressions? Well, so, yeah, so now that I'm 45 and he's now 40... <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're right it seems like we're very close in age it's like we, we're getting closer and closer in age yeah. as we get older yeah. but absolutely back then he was so young because i grew up with maddie his brother maddie you know um so connor was a boy he wasn't even justin i mean justin's older than connor you know <laughs> yeah. like but uh but they were super sweet and uh because you were what, like eighteen, and he was thirteen, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had the, you know, cajones 
which it really was not, but it kind of did seem like that. But he was like, like I started playing Commander Venus with him because he was just like, I want to start a rock band. Do you want to be in it? And I was like, of course, Connor, why not? But it was all just like in good fun. I had no idea. I mean, I know none of us, I didn't really expect it to like move on as well as it did. But that's what's kind of cool about Connor is like everything he's done has always been like, there's like an energy to it and like people like respond to it. And, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, even back then, this totally weird band, Commander Venus, like actually got picked up by a label, and like they took us out to New York, and we recorded an album out in New York. It was just like so weird, you know? Yeah, and I mean, is that when it started to feel like the thing that didn't seem possible to being from Omaha that you were going to be a? I mean, getting flown to record something somewhere that must have made right. begin to feel more like this is—is is this what I'm? doing that? Am I going to do so this? So my conservative is <laughs> my, my Nebraska brain. I could never really get, I never could really quite get there. Uh, it was just always just seemed like, wow, lucky break. Right. Wow, lucky break. And uh, I, I still could just never really conceive of um, of it going further, you know, just because there's always, I mean, and really uh, looking back at the whole thing and I always, and I it's really all of this is really so true it's just like it's just a, we all fit through a pinhole I mean there was like there's a pinhole of a success and like nobody gets to fit through it and somehow we managed to it was just like really lucky and I think time there was just a lot of luck with timing it seems like and like even I feel like grateful it's weird but I feel grateful to the internet that all of that stuff was happening right around the time that the internet was kind of starting to like take true, off true true I ha- hadn't really thought about it that way I mean, I I guess I would feel compelled to say that that's overly humble estimation of why the artists that uh, achieve national and international attention from that scene why they did so. I mean, you know, I don't. I'm not a not an absolute believer in cream always rises though or whatever. <laughs> you know, the thing is, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't think. Uh, yeah, you don't make it out of the bubble and stay outside just because you got out through a pinhole. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's just like of... zeitgeist shit. You know, it's like tapping yeah. in, tapping into something. And I guess I do think that, like, you know, in the realm of like analyzing the zeitgeist and the sort of where do where does it begin and where did you know why did the monkeys on that island and that island learn how to crack open the coconut <laughs> at the same time, you know, or whatever. But, yeah, I think there's a kind of hive mind that happens in scenes like that, especially when there's yeah. so much overlap and there's people who are more seasoned and people who are younger coming into it and and uh, underestimating what might happen so you keep things pure and, you know, and that ends up being a thing that is part of what strengthens it, you know, sort of like the D- DC punk stuff or whatever. Yeah, I... I like all of this that you're saying. I, I can I can appreciate it, and I can I can I can I can agree with that. Uh, I do believe I do very much believe that the um, that 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 large group of us growing up and doing it together had a lot to do with it. Uh, something that we've all I think many of us have talked about for years is uh, the raising the bar concept. That I think was really helpful, like extremely help beneficial to all for all of our songwriting, uh, is that, is, and I think I can speak for every for all of us that there was never this um, 
competition, but yet there was. It was, but it was like this really healthy competition of every time one of us did a record, everyone else would go, holy shit, is that what we're doing now? And so we all had to, so the bar would be raised. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, we're doing records like that well now? So like everyone would be like, yeah. let's go do a record that well now. And that's really, that is helpful, you know, but that's, yeah. um, that's like positive healthy competition. Not because another thing, because I really rail against um, so many music communities that I've seen like traveling around mm-hmm. where um, the bands and songwriters don't get along and they're like, they're not, it's like unhealthy competition. Yeah, like, fuck those guys. Yeah, and they don't support each other and um, so they're not benefiting from each other at yeah. all. They're yeah. just pissy at each other. And they hear each other's albums and go, well, that sucks. I don't know why everybody likes it. And it's like, well, you're not benefiting from that at all. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of kind of ebbs and flows and and songwriting, like, when did that first, when did that concept of like, oh, God, what if I'm out of songs or what if I'm not, you know, start to be a thing? Like, because it sounds like initially you had these various different projects and just kind of no absence of material there. Um, so I... This is, I guess, where I lose my humility. Uh, I just this, and I this is, and I say this too because it's a funny thing that Connor. It's an ongoing conversation that Connor and I have had for most of our life together. Is uh, is I I just I really love songwriting, and I feel at forty five years old now that it's never going away. Like it's just like it's always there's always going to be another round, and I think it's a blast, and I totally appreciate it. Uh, I say that confidently because it's always the opposite with Connor is that is we've had so many conversations where he's like, nope, it's done. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, same, yeah, same over, over yeah. my shorter friendship with him. He, after every time a thing's done, he's like, maybe that's it. I know. And I always laugh and I'm like, Con, I think it's going to come around again. You're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, sure. I've certainly had so many droughts. Right. But I just know they're droughts. Right. That's just it. I've like been doing it long enough now that I recognize that all it really means is is uh, put down the guitar. Right. Go do something else for a while. Have you changed your approach to sort of just like the practice of songwriting over over your life? Uh, I think I have, uh, but like really or naturally, like mm-hmm. I don't think I ever. It, there was never ever um, a specific decision I made but I can look back now and recognize that I write and work on songwriting a hell of a lot more than I used to Uh, and I think that it's because I very gradually was just like you need to always you just need to be getting ideas out as often as you can and kind of taking on that attitude of like write bad songs you know yeah like just write them nobody has to hear them yeah just write them figure them out get them out, get them out of the way, or, you know, just like any of those. And it's also because I enjoy doing it, and I can feel productive, and that's really important, I think, as a human being. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. When did you start to have more confidence in your singing? And You know, when, when did that be something that seemed worth trying to figure out? Um, and think... then when did it start to feel good? <laughs> I'd say that that I've been like up. I went up that hill, and then I'm like down at the other side of that hill now. <laughs> really? Yeah. Maybe about. I think. Oh, I don't know. Maybe about 15 years ago. Maybe that's too long. Well, maybe like 13 years ago, 
I was really buying into this delusion that I was a good singer because enough people were <laughs> telling me that I was a good singer. And um, I've since, I've since like keep stumbling down the backside of that <laughs> of that mountain. And I'm into a much what is good. I'm in I, I'm in a much healthier place now where I'm like I can recognize that like because I can rec as in I can recognize it as in I can straight up recognize like I record myself. And so I can hear that, like, I struggle with, like, singing. And, like, I struggle with, I just struggle with, like, um, there's, a, there's like, a natural, like, innate, you know, quality. Or uh, some people just naturally understand, like, how to, like, sing in pitch, you know? like Yeah, it's muscles and stuff. Yeah, and I'm just, like, not that good at that. And I need a lot of practice. I mean, there's just things I've learned about myself. Like, I need a lot of practice to, like, get used to a song. Mm-hmm. And where the next person can just be like, how's it go? You know, and then you start singing it. Like, I just don't have any of that. So I'm, like, really not a singer. I'm just the person who writes the songs, you know? Like, there's a lot of us like that. Well, you're a vocalist. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of us that are like that. It's just like, well, I wrote this song, and I wrote these lyrics and this melody, and when I was in high school, I had somebody else sing it, and I eventually kind of was like, I guess I should just be the one who sings it. But it must feel physically satisfying in some way or psychologically satisfying in some way because you choose to keep doing it. Yes. I will tell you that. So singing well or what is my version of well is immensely satisfying for me Um, so much so. So I've um, just so all of us grew up drinkers and I took me for years, just took me years and years. I just would, I just kept trying. So like, I go on tour and my, it's just so hard to keep my vocal cords up and keep them up and running. And I would just blame absolutely anything else on my vocal problems, except for like whiskey. I would just never be like, you know, cause there's like the thing that like, I was like, I'm not ditching, you know, like I'm not gonna ditch that. Like that's. You're like, when my throat hurts, it makes it feel better. That can't Yeah, be it's problem. like, this is my second favorite drink. I'm not going to like, just stop, you know. Number one I, is coffee? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, so I just, it took me forever to admit the very, very obvious thing that if you're going to drink a ton of whiskey, you're just going to dry yourself out. And if you're going to dry yourself out, then you're going to have dry vocal cords and then you're going to then you're going to sing through these vocal cords and you're going to scratch them up and you're going to ruin them. You're going to damage them. And then you, now you can't sing anymore. I've been doing that most of my singing career. Yeah. And uh, now I've finally, you know, finally figured out that that's the major problem uh and so this is like really big for me to say because i've been like a drinker my whole life i actually get more gratification out of singing well and performing well than being drunk and that's been a really big hurdle for me and i'm really glad that i'm here now yeah uh, and i still drink i'm not like i didn't like a right. in that but, but i buzz, drink the, reasonably right. but i the drink buzz you prefer to have the buzz of Right, it's a better feeling. Like, well, I crushed that for me. Yes, than I, the bu- temporary buzz of the booze. It's, oh, it's, wow, hey, it's, cheers. yeah. It's a funny thing. <laughs> it's a funny thing for me because mostly I've hated, and I still kind of do um, hate this, but mostly I've resented myself for picking, for kind of accidentally picking this life of being a vocalist. Because it's like being an athlete, 
and why the hell do I want to be an athlete and have to take care of myself and like have to take care, you know, like, and again, this is getting from like, I don't want to like draw us as, as a, you know, as a bunch of alcoholics, but in a lot of ways, that's kind of what we were growing up. It's just like, we all just like, it was this Nebraska Midwestern drinking community. And it's what I was most familiar with. And it has been really hard to abandon that. So it's just been, I don't know. So it's just been like a real, so that's why I hated being a vocalist. It's just like, this is so annoying. Why do I have, you know, having yeah. to take, like, none of the, no one else in the band has to take care of themselves. The drummer, the drummer has to take care of themselves. The Good Life is going to be playing some shows uh, coming up. Is that a thing? That's we happening? are, yeah. yeah. Um, so we wanted to get together. It's been a, gosh, I'm not even sure, but I feel like it's been a few years now. Like five years <clears> since <throat> the last. God, oh. that's crazy. That time goes by like that. But yeah, I mean, I guess I've put out like maybe three albums since then. It's really weird. Because I feel like it doesn't feel like that long ago to me. Like that Good Life record, Everybody's Coming Down, seems like a new record to me. But I guess too many musical careers, that's like an old record already. Well, no, it seems pretty recent to, to yeah. me as well. It's not like people always say now, like when they post about things, they're like, the first new album since. And then sometimes it'll be just two years prior is the way that sentence ends. And I'm like, that's not. That's just the like, new one. That's it's not just the first the latest, new sense. Yeah. It's just taking up uh-huh. my editor. The editor me kicks in in those moments. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the last time you started a new, officially kind of launched a new non-cursive project, which, you know, whatever, more than a decade ago now with mm-hmm. initial album by The Good Life. And I'm curious sort of when you're in that mode, what is it, what's kind of other aspect of your musical personality do you feel like that project is an outlet for? Uh, you know, that is something that, we are that I think is always evolving I guess um I try to cater it to those to that band to Mm -hmm. Steph and Ryan and Roger so everybody's coming down we kind of got a little more like psychedelic and a little more rock and I was just that's kind of I think that's what they respond to a lot so it's just kind of like what we did I think that prior to that so so that's an important record to the four of us yeah. And I think, and I, and I think that's. I, I'm pretty sure I can speak for the four of us that that's our favorite record, and that might be the record that we. I think that would be fair to say that's the most representative of us because of what I'm kind of talking about now, which is when we decided to do that Good Life record, which was the God, fifth record, fifth record. That kind of felt like the. It, I had already started doing solo records, and so solo records kind of felt like, well, maybe that's kind of like that good life, quote-unquote, outlet of, mm-hmm. like, the non-cursive, the other stuff. Right, the more personal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so now, but we're like, well, we should do another good life record. So, like, what does that mean? What is that? And so I think that's what kind of came out of it was kind of like this, like, interesting rock record. Yeah. That has a lot of their personalities and a lot of their character on that record. So that makes me like that record in a different way than the rest of the Good Life catalog. Which the rest of the Good Life catalog, they have a lot of representation on those as well. But we're still kind of specifically me being like, this is an acoustic thing that needs to be kind of subdued a lot. It needs to kind of be... Like, there's a lot of wrangling it in. Like, reining it in a lot, I think. And uh, that doesn't feel like that was the case for this that last one, right. which was cool. And I think it was like a liberating feeling for all four of us. Well, it's interesting as well, just like, you know, this recurring theme of like productivity or prolificacy or something like that. And it's and in talking about these extra cursive things, it's obvious that, yeah, any project that comes up, you're like, yeah, I could write I could write songs for that 
that thing, whatever it is at any given time, um, that level of customization. I mean, do you get, do you start to feel, if there's nothing on the horizon, like, oh, there's a, a curse of album or there's a good life tour or there's a whatever, do you, how long can you go before you're like, oh. <laughs> Not very long. It's, that's a good question and it's a good point. I do have those moments and I can remember one, it was a little while ago now, but sometime after, sometime before, so I have like this whole solo record kind of like I'm in the middle of right now. Oh, it's And that I'll be releasing like, I guess, probably in 2021, I guess. I Just kind of pushing it off, actually. I could release it this year, but I, I feel like there's just a lot of other stuff going on, yeah. you know? And I'm just yeah. like, I think maybe I just need to like make space, you yeah. know? But I, prior to that starting that project, that was like the last time that I felt, I don't like that feeling at all. Yeah. Of like just kind of like not knowing that there's anything happening yeah. in the future. It's like really unsettling to me. What do you do? What What do you do when you have no work product? What What's your main go to? Just daytime. Gwen is at work. Hobbies. What are you gonna do for fun when you're bored? I mean, like it almost never happens because because so I also do a lot of screenwriting as well. So I'm like always. Oh shit. So I'm really? always, I do I, I, too much. I'm, I do way too much screenwriting for a person who is not a, does not have a career as a screenwriter. Wow, that's so cool. I had no idea that you did that. Yeah, I, I do a lot of it. It's ridiculous. I'm actually proud, excited to say that I think I'm finishing the one I'm on right now. I think I'm going to finish it this afternoon. I'm very excited about it. Oh my gosh. It. So on, wait, the, these are, finish your sentence, sorry. Well, I'm on page like 109 right now. And I think it's going to go to about page 115 or something like that. So I'm feeling really good. And these are self, self-assigned things? Or yeah. These, yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. And then what happens to them after they're finished? I set them I, on the proverbial shelf and they just collect dust. <laughs> it's a strange... I How just many really, have you written? Quite You're a, blowing my mind. I've written quite a few. It's really strange. Um, I do. I certainly try. I mean, similar to sending things out to record labels, you know, back in the day. Yeah. I certainly try to get them made, but I just, I'm having a really hard, I've had a really hard time tapping into that I mean, it's impo- It's competitive as fuck. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But. <laughs> it's hard to get anything done in this town. But I love to write, and oh, I love cool. to be productive. Um, the, I'll give you, I'll, since we're talking about how absurd, I truly find this absurd that I do this. Because I, I mean, I joke about it often because it's like why I'm so serious about it too like I'm like I need to get this finished there's <laughs> zero deadline there's like no deadline nobody's asking for the script but it's like it needs do you to have get a, done do you have a type of like genre, like genre? genre? no I do I, I bounce around a bit but I do I mean clearly I would I do all my favorites so I've written a decent amount of drama and I've done some comedy and I've done like a decent amount of horror so oh my god what can you give me just a rough estimate of how many of these you've written and um I'll just say 10 because I yeah. don't know if it's... Good Lord. I don't know. I think it's more than that. Right. But I don't really And when know. did you start doing... Because I've also done pilots. Time. I like write pilots right. and I like set up like seasons for TV series and like it's ridiculous. Damn. It's wow. ridiculous. It I really it. is. I love it. I'm glad we got... I'm glad I didn't miss getting that out of you before I wrapped up this conversation because that's... And I just feel like that's... Wow. What an exciting thing to have that you enjoy doing enough Fucking hell, that's the dream, man, that you can, in the course of an adulthood, have two things that you like doing enough that you would do them without being paid for them. 
I, but it yeah. just opens up the possibility that that can be a thing that you do do for money in the future if you don't feel like touring anymore. I have a lot of faith in you. The most absurd one that I did that people gave me real shit for was I actually so the movie Silver Bullet. Do you know? Do you remember that? I do. Corey Haim and Gary Busey. Oh and my it's god! A, it's a Stephen King novella, Cycle of the Werewolf. But I watched it so many times in about eight years ago or so. It just like a light bulb went off, and I was like, "This thing needs to be remade." So I rewrote it. I did a, re- <laughs> I rewrote cycle. I rewrote Silver Bullet, and then I sent it to a couple of people, and they're like, "What is this?" And I, and I explained it to them, and they're like, "So you got the rights to it?" And I was like, "No, not at all." They're like, "Why would you write a screenplay and you don't even have the rights to it?" And I was like, "I just had it. I had an idea." Wow, it was ridiculous, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Tim, for yeah, having me thank you. It was awesome talking to you. You as well. All right. Well, as promised, I've posted those Good Life tour dates in the show notes for this episode, so have a look at them there or elsewhere on the internet. And that brings us to the end of episode 41 of the LSQ podcast. Thanks again to Tim Kasher, and thanks for listening. The next episode I'm excited to share in a couple of weeks features an interview with Group Love's Hannah Hooper, and their new album is also just a couple of weeks away. And listen for episodes in the weeks ahead from Toon Yard's Meryl Garbus, King Tough, Phosphorescence Matthew Houck, and more. And subscribe if you hadn't done that already. Plus, if you like the show, maybe leave a rating or a review. That'd be sweet. You can always reach me with feedback and so forth at JennyLSQ on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again. I'll talk to you next time.